Hello and welcome to February's Rich Pickings, Fidelity's award-winning asset allocation podcast, with me, Richard Edgar. Coronavirus infections are spreading around the world. Outbreaks in Italy and South Korea have triggered lockdowns in those countries, and markets everywhere have taken substantial hits. But the vast majority of cases are confined to mainland China. So this month we ask, how much is the virus disrupting the engine of the global economy? How's that being transmitted along supply chains? And what can authorities do to help? This episode was recorded the day before Hong Kong announced helicopter money to stimulate the economy, which, as you'll hear, is a policy predicted in the discussion. Listen on to find out more. We're here in the London studio. I'm joined by Anna Stubnitska, Head of Global Macro and Investment Strategy. And on the line from Hong Kong, uh, from the confines of her home, because of the uh, coronavirus, of course, precautions, uh, we've got Jing Ning, an equity portfolio manager, and Brian Collins, uh, Head of Fixed Income in Asia, has come into the office especially. Well, thank you all for joining me. Hello. Right, let me start by asking uh, Brian and Jing in Hong Kong. I mean, how have you been keeping cabin fever at bay? Because you've been cooped up largely at home for uh, for some weeks now. Jing? Well, you know, the past couple of weeks has been so interesting for me. I spent my Chinese New Year in my hometown, Beijing. And then I just returned back to Hong Kong on the 13th of February. Uh, if you know, there's a new regulation by Hong Kong government that if you're coming from mainland China, you have to self-quarantine 14 days at home. So I've been staying at home without going anywhere in the past 14 days. Uh, Hong Kong police is actually calling me every day to check around to see whether I'm actually at home or not. Really? So what, what have you been doing? Have you been, have you been rearranging the plates and the bowls? Have you been dusting? Uh, how, how, are you, how are you keeping yourself amused staying at home all this time? Amused? Uh, I wouldn't say amused. Uh, you know, I, I mean, you probably can hear from my background noise. I have a eight-year-old at home, and she's homeschooling. Uh, so I'm partially working every day, and I'm partially schooling her uh, for most of the times. Uh, but uh, but 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 no complaint. I mean, compared with many other people in China, I think my situation is not bad at all. You sound stoic, uh, Jing. And, and, and Brian, you've obviously given up. You couldn't cope with it at home. You've, you've had to come into the office. Well, we've spent quite a bit of time uh, being confined and working from home. And now we're starting to return to normal. So for certain uh, important meetings, client updates, etc., we're, we're diligently coming into the office, but, but keeping it very well organized just to make sure we're doing it sensibly. Uh, but, you know, the weather's nice in Hong Kong at this time of year. So Having a hike up to the peak at lunchtime um, is just wonderful from from home. Um, if, if only we could do it a little bit more. But slowly returning to normal, I think, is the, is, is the summary there. A silver lining and there aren't even any clouds. That sounds splendid. And Anna, uh, any tips for prolonged family incarcerations from you? Well, if you have um, uh, young kids like myself, I think investing uh, into lots of arts and crafts materials is important and even glitter can be allowed uh, in this case. And of course, something for exercise to keep sanity. So I have a treadmill or a spin bike. Um, well, walking to the peak sounds a bit more a uh, bit more fun, but thank you, <laughs> thank you, Anna. Okay, now the house view it hasn't changed this month uh, so far. Anyway, the allocation remains moderately risk on, with a more balanced approach in equities between growth and value. But Anna, what are the leading indicators that you're looking at or that you're waiting for to clarify um, the picture? Well, clearly um, we are at uh, very early stages um, right now. We have uh, already seen a flash PMIs last week, and these were the early indicators for uh, what kind of. Imp- 
impact the coronavirus might have on activity. Um, on the surface, they were not so bad, uh, particularly in Europe. But actually, if you look at some uh, leading indicators within that, like suppliers, deliveries, or time, uh, how long it takes for deliveries to arrive, actually, um, that's something that's already pointing to uh, disruptions in supply chains. Uh, so now we are waiting to see what the final PMIs are going to show. That's at the beginning of March. So the PMIs for May. We know there are going to be disruptions to supply chains. It, it's the quantum, isn't it? It's trying to find out how significant that, that that disruption is. Yeah, I think we want to see the depth of that disruption. And uh, and of course, as you say, everyone expects that it's going to be significant and the data is going to be really bad. But uh, at this point, we just need to gauge the magnitude um, and then maybe it will tell us something about uh, the rebound going forward. What about you, Brian? What are you looking at? Yeah, so, I mean, we completely acknowledge there's going to be some very, very ugly data for the first quarter and probably even for the first half, especially if you think about it quarter on quarter, half on half. You know, the markets are being relatively sensible by looking through that and looking for the policy response that will come from that. And also, we're paying very close attention to the signs of China returning to normal. So they've still got a way to go, don't get me wrong, I'm sure Jing's got some points here, but it's little things like coal and energy consumption. It's little things like looking at uh, passenger throughput. It's looking at uh, even things like Baltic dry index, like a good old classic measure from 10 odd years ago, just to try and get an understanding of of whether or not we're seeing that activity. And and a lot of other uh, activity numbers can come through there. But that's what we're looking at. And there is very tentative signs that we're seeing some recovery, but we've got a very long way to go. I mean, just looking at the immigration index, just to get a sense for how many migrant workers have actually returned to their hometown, that's well below where we should be for this period after Chinese New Year. I mean, significantly below. So so we know that there is a slow progressive return to normal, but we've certainly got a way to go. So finding the clues, I suppose, for the, for the big, bigger picture. And, and Jing, as, a, as an active investor, you must be talking to the companies themselves in China. Um, what are they telling you about um, activity now? Yeah, you know, Richard, uh, one good thing about working from home is uh, I got a lot of time to do the conference call with the management. In the past couple of weeks, I probably had a dozens of uh, calls with a company with management from different industry from the banking chemical company consumer company my biggest takeaway is that they probably don't have better visibility than we do so there's a lot of questions flying around and they the corporate themselves are trying to figure out how they are going to go through this and a very very uncertain period of time i mean as brian mentioned there's a lot of high frequency data if you look at the power consumption data is coming back a little bit gradually, uh, but it's still well below the normal uh, level uh, at this time around post-Chinese New Year. The migrant worker is gradually coming back. One situation very uh, interesting in China these days is uh, local government. If you think about local government, they are being given two, uh, two goals at this point of time. On one hand, they need to continue to fight this virus. On the other hand, they need to resume the uh, production and work ASAP. But these two objectives seems to be conflicting to each other. If they allow business to come back quickly enough, if there is another uptake of uh, the virus infected cases, and they will, uh, their political career is probably in jeopardy. It's a very difficult balancing act, isn't it? But we can see that everybody's anxious to get back to uh, back to normal just 
trying to not to do it too soon. Well, let's hear now from Ian Sampson, a portfolio manager from the multi-asset team in Hong Kong. He oversees Fidelity's leading indicator, or the FLY. Now, for new listeners, the FLY is an aggregate of a range of business surveys and economic data that builds a detailed picture of where the global economy will be in the coming months. And our Asia editor, Neil Goff, caught up with him in a street-side cafe in Hong Kong to hear how the FLY is reflecting current events. Ian begins with a recap on where it was before the virus hit. So the story of the fly is for much of the the last stages of last year, it was pointing to a global economy heading to a modestly above trend uh, position. It didn't necessarily point to huge amounts of momentum, but it suggested that we were were certainly past the worst. What we've seen at the last reading is that it's starting to, to swirl back down. So we've moved from the top right of growth positive and improving to the bottom right's growth positive but but starting to decline. So what's driving that Uh, and could it be picking up on early signs of the coronavirus? Well one of the the biggest attractors this month has been the Baltic Dry Index which uh, measures the the cost of shipping globally and of course as a a day-to-day price that was really really quick to pick up on on the plunge in, in commodity prices the cancelling of orders in certain commodity markets. So that is clearly picking up on some of the, the coronavirus impacts. How much of that would you say, and how much of generally what we're seeing in the fly is hangover from the trade wars, uh, you know, the US-China trade wars, we kind of move directly from that into a coronavirus outbreak? I actually think that the economic impact globally of the trade wars might have been overstated. So what you see actually is there's, there's some very positive components of the fly this month, and one of them is global trade. So if you're looking for a good story, you'd say, well, actually, hard data and indeed survey data on, on global trade was picking up really quite firmly into, into the end of 2019, start of 2020. So there's, there's actually some positive signals coming out of the, the global trade cycle until it got hit by the coronavirus. And what do you think the impact there is going to be? I mean, we've only seen, I guess, the first few weeks of impact that's been picked up in the latest reading, but, you know, coming in the coming months. Oh, undoubtedly, the next two months of readings, at least, is going to be very directly impacted to the downside. So it wouldn't be surprising to see fly growth again turning below trends. But of course, the question is, is that a two-month story? Sure, if people um, can't get to work, if orders are being cancelled, undoubtedly you, you get a, a weak patch. But is that demand being destroyed, or is it just being delayed? And if it's just being delayed, people still want to buy iPhones, people still want to buy houses, people still want to buy cars, they're just putting it off a couple of months we could look through this downturn. So thinking about like a snapback in demand, if you look at the subsectors, what are some of the, the readings that you would look at that would indicate to you that a, a snapback or rebound is actually starting to, to take hold? Well, clearly the first to go has been the commodity sensitive, so things like that Baltic Dry index, that shipping index. So you'd expect them to be most sensitive to a turn back up. So I'll be looking at that. Also, I think uh, the trade components. So you you actually saw, as I say, a a good reading this month, but undoubtedly bellwethers like Korean exports will will fall off a cliff at the next reading. But I'd expect them to be very sensitive and snap back quite quickly when activity starts to normalize. So the question becomes, how big is that snapback? 
I'd be looking at shipping cost indices and uh, global trade bellwethers. Great. Thanks very much, Ian. That was Neil Goff talking to uh, Ian Sampson in Hong Kong, and they mentioned the Baltic Dry Index there as well. Now, Anna, the, the consensus earlier this month had been for um, a first quarter hit followed by a big rebound, a V-shaped um, rebound. Um, does that still hold, or as, as Brian was suggesting, is this something that could extend into the first half? I think it doesn't hold anymore. Uh, I think consensus was too optimistic. And in fact, I would argue it still is. We will see some rebound, but it probably is not going to be very sharp. And in fact, the longer the disruption lasts, the the bigger the damage to growth is going to be. So I think it will last well beyond Q2 or perhaps through the whole year. Oh, really? And importantly, I don't think the rebound will be strong enough to compensate uh, for the the lost activity, lost output. So I think net-net, for this year, growth numbers probably everywhere are going to be lower. So permanently lost um, rather than the delayed spending this, um, as Ian was suggesting? I think it depends on sectors. Um, uh, We shouldn't forget that uh, it's not just about manufacturing. It's not just about iPhones. uh, It's also about services, in particular tourism. For example, Italy is losing tourists and uh, they are not going to come come back back again. again. Yeah, exactly. Okay, um, Brian, what sectors do you think are going to be hit with in China? Well, uh, just about everything uh, as a general rule. And clearly the sectors that can't make up their lost uh, production or their lost revenue later in the year are going to be clearly most impacted. So tourism, travel, um, some of these other sectors that can't store inventory and can't make up that capacity uh, with higher productivity later on are going to be more, more, more adversely impacted. Um, you know, when we think about the fallout for the rest of Asia, we sort of break it up into about three different categories for the indirect impact that's coming across uh, countries within Asia, at least. And it would be consistent, perhaps, with other parts of the world, just as Anna mentioned. So you've got some economies that are much more reliant on tourism, Thailand, Sri Lanka, even Singapore and Hong Kong, to some extent, that they're already getting impacted by a fall in tourist numbers. You've then got uh, the more traditional countries or regions, if you will, that are exposed to global trade and to the supply chain out of China. So Korea and Taiwan, clearly. And then you've got the commodity type uh, exporters, and that would extend to Mongolia, Indonesia, and even out into places like Australia and other parts. So they're all starting to actually respond with a little bit of monetary policy easing, but they're going to have to do some more. And at least when we think about what's happening in China, look at Macau Gaming, for an example. Uh, Macau was forced to close some of its casinos. It pretty much relies exclusively on people coming across from mainland China and they're starting to open up again, but the gross gaming revenue, for which is a very common measure that we would use to, to, to determine how that sector is performing, it's likely to be down 90% quarter on quarter. Basically, that means that other than a few days in January, no one's been going. So those sorts of sectors are clearly going to be impacted uh, and, and the recovery is going to take some time. And, and Jing, as the the scale of the impact and the, the, the differences in, across sectors, as Brian was um, explaining there, as that all begins to, to become clearer, um, how are you adjusting how you invest? How are you adjusting your portfolio? So basically, after this event, it is to, it's, it's still evolving, right? I have seen a lot of uh, winner versus loser analysis from either from the sell side and from the buy side. I think a lot of people are taking things very grant, uh, for, for granted. A lot of analysis is probably too straightforward, a little bit misleading. 
uh, because I have seen a lot of people backtesting this uh, the, uh, the current situation against 2003, the SARS event. But I would say the macro backdrop is very different this time around versus before because uh, back in 2003, China was in a was in a much stronger cyclical upturn after joining WTO versus now. Well, growth was double double what it is now. Yeah, double uh, trade war with U.S. and deleveraging last year. So basically, we're sitting on a very fragile and fine balance between easy monetary policy and economy strength. So anything twisting the balance one way or another is going to, what I say, we're going to see some second derivative impact from the second quarter in a way that uh, whether uh, this event, the loss of revenue for many industry, consumer industry, cons- uh, services, are going to impact the employment and income income expectation and to last degree the property market going forward. So, so how, how are you reacting though in terms of your own investment? So basically in a situation like this, you have to go case by case. Uh, I'm working with uh, my China analysts. We're looking at a company case by case scenario because it's sometimes it's not, it's very easy to calculate the loss of revenue. But on the other hand, if you think about the margin and cash flow, the number is going to be all over the places. So I'm looking. I'm not thinking. Okay, healthcare is beneficiary. I'm just going to buy healthcare versus infrastructure. I'm just going to look at my company on case by cases. Of course, there's going to be stronger balance sheet company with stronger cash flow. Larger company is going to come out of this situation much better. So we're going to see a lot of industry consolidation going forward. So in a way that. Uh, you buy the large winner, the largest company in any industry in China, they're going to come out better than the competition. Brian, how about you? So, I mean, generally speaking, we, we still have a modest risk on across a lot of our credit strategies. So these are the strategies that are more associated with the quality of sovereigns and corporates. Um, but often in this part of the world, they're actually priced in US dollars. So we've still got moderately risk-on positions, um, but we are putting on some hedges. We are actually trying to protect the portfolio. And interestingly, we're doing it in a, in a couple of different ways. But you know, when we look at what's happened over risk asset classes over the last even six to 12 months, and Jing's probably got a bit much better perspective, but equity valuations in this part of the world, certainly for Hong Kong and China, have been depressed for quite some time. If we look at credit spreads within Asia, uh, the high quality parts of our market are at almost at all time tights. But for some of the weaker parts, there is a cushion, there's a risk premium built into them. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that when you compare parts of Asia's credit markets and even equity markets to global markets, there might actually be an opportunity here to hedge with global markets and still maintain our our exposure in, in the relatively cheaper parts of Asia. And the main reason why we're still comfortable with that is for a couple of things. First of all, for bonds, high quality bonds, high quality government bonds, they've actually gone up in value. That's the flight to quality trade. Chinese government bonds have performed extremely well. US treasuries have performed extremely well. So, so we still want to maintain exposures there. And most of our funds have core exposures there. When we come to the credit markets, we want to maintain those exposures to the high quality names, those that will be those long term winners, but also those that continue to pay us a very attractive level of income. And we're confident that they will continue to be able to service their debt and continue to pay that uh, that income, even if we have to absorb a little bit of capital volatility over the medium and longer term. But as a general rule, we're being certainly very conservative, but also 
we're getting ready to add risk. And we're getting ready to add risk as and when we see the policy response is starting to kick through. Uh, we'll come to that in a minute, I think, the policy response. But Anna, let me come to you then. And um, it's moved from just being about China and Hong Kong and then Korea to really becoming a global problem. Which regions or countries stand to take the biggest economic hit? China is obviously yeah, high amongst them. Of course. And um, of course, Asian economists, as Brian mentioned, those that are closely linked with China, um, these are uh, the obvious uh, culprits. But I would say that I think Europe, again, is probably the most vulnerable um, economy, at least within developed markets, because uh, it has very close links uh, with China, not just uh, industry, but also tourism, um, because um, uh, it was, uh, for most part of last year, in technical recession in a number of countries. We saw technical recession uh, and because policy options are so limited there. So I do think earlier or later, uh, central banks, including the ECB and the Fed, will have to respond, even though in this case, I think monetary policy is too blunt of an instrument uh, to fix the problem. So really, we need fiscal policy, we need more spending and more targeted spending in the areas that that need that spending, not just uh, spending on infrastructure or, I don't know, um, cutting taxes or big policy measures like this. It has to be thoughtful, it has to be targeted, and it has to be timely. And the problem with Europe in particular is that it might come, but it might be a bit too late. And it'll be piecemeal as well, because at least with the ECB, you've got one institution which can act for the whole of um, Europe. But in terms of fiscal, you've got every country's own government. I mean, um, the, the fiscal and indeed the monetary policy in China, Brian, has been targeted and it has been well orchestrated through this, hasn't it? It definitely has been targeted in recent times. Uh, It's been relatively well orchestrated if you put it into the context of uh, the initial response. So there's still a lot more that we would expect to be hearing uh, in terms of the policy response. So let me just highlight a few things. From a monetary policy perspective, China does have room to move. Its interest rates are structurally higher than in many other parts of the world. And actually, a deposit rate cut is highly likely to happen. There are some implications around that, but that'll help support the banks to some extent, who in then turn will do, do, do the national service and, and, and help in terms of lending and debt forbearance. But the monetary policy is a bit blunt in China. It's not going to have the same effect like it would in, say, the US or, or in Europe or UK. So fiscal is going to have to do a lot of that heavy lifting. So we have and will continue to expect to see a much more targeted fiscal response from China. It does have the ability to extend a step up, actually, in its fiscal deficit to GDP from 2019 to 2020. We're thinking it's going to be six, six and a half by the time you bring in not not just the official uh, fiscal stimulus, but all the other augmented, and and it could even be more. The challenge with the fiscal stimulus is just like in previous uh, episodes, the rising tide might lift all proverbial boats, and it will need to be much more focused on certain sectors. So getting the property market starting again is critical, not only for construction uh, and for employment, but also for the way that the property sector actually helps fund local governments in terms of land auctions. Then you've also got to make sure that you're maintaining a relative sensible support for the market, for the wealth effect, for consumption. Um, so th- there's, there's a lot more that does need to happen. Um, but for the moment, China's been saving its arrows, if you will, or its bullets over the last couple of years by not panicking and pressing the button. So at least to, from a relative perspective to other global markets and, and other larger economies, China still has some ammunition. 
Okay, well, let's bring it to the um, to the global picture again. Jing, I mean, China is so critical to global supply chains. How can you predict what the impact is going to be based on what you're seeing of the companies that um, that you follow in China um, at the moment? I mean, very interestingly, we just finished our annual uh, Taiwan technology trip. So we met a lot of uh, technology company in Taiwan. And from the supply side, they actually don't think this virtual situation is going to take a major hit from the production because uh, most of the activity will resume from after Chinese New Year, typically in March anyway. So loss of February alone may not be that traumatic for, for them. So the production can run faster, they can make up things easier in March. So they're not overwhelmingly concerned from the production perspective. But from demand, I think that's uh, nobody has a very clear answer whether we're looking at the likelihood of demand destruction. If we think about either from the handset, from laptop, all of the consumer electronics perspective, we actually don't know. Another thing I want to say is, uh, you know, because of the trade war situation last year, many multinational companies has already started processing of uh, supply chain diversification away from China. I think with the situation happening in China, it's going to accelerate that process. We have already heard uh, many companies now uh, more than ever, they're taking that uh, approach more seriously. Even a lot of Chinese companies themselves, when they have a majority of the demand coming from the external market, they are thinking very high level strategic perspective, they need to diversify away from China as well. So they're moving their production away from China, uh, and that's both international and local companies. That's fascinating. Well, actually, I want to stay on this subject of supply chains, because it might be easier for tech companies, in in your example, to to move. But what about autos? Because we spoke to one of our auto analysts, Oliver Trimmingham, to give us a sense of how the industry is coping. And he reports that about 60% of car makers delayed their return to work after the Chinese New Year holiday. Here's what he has to say about the impact that pause in production is having on the sector. So there are some examples of car makers who've reported that their factories have reopened. So some good examples would be uh, Tesla's new factory in Shanghai or Audi's production facilities in the north of China, obviously further away from the epicenter of the outbreak. The question is the extent to which they've reached full capacity. And my suspicion is that it is unlikely they're at full speed, given the stories we've had of lack of labour and uh, limitations on migrant workers returning to base. So there, there is a significant amount of uncertainty about how many cars China is going to produce in the first quarter of this year. So we had 60% of car production not returning to work, uh, assuming that good portion of it gets back by the end of the quarter. Uh, my current best guess is that Chinese car production will be around, down around 25 to 30 percent year on year uh, in the first quarter. The automotive industry is around 10 percent of Chinese GDP, all things considered. So, yeah, if production is down 25 to 30 percent, it's going to have a significant knock on Chinese GDP. If I was Xi Jinping, I'd be worried about what's happening to the automotive industry. And in fact, I mean, the Chinese automotive industry has been in a slump since September 2018 now. So it's been in a slump already. And this this is um, yet another severe blow. Uh, and I believe there are comments out from Xi Jinping that he would support the automotive industry. Their retail sales data was down 90, 90% year on year in the first two weeks of February. So in terms of retail demand, unsurprisingly, right now, uh, it's close to zero. Let's let's be let's be optimistic 
and let's say coronavirus is brought under control, if we assume there has been no demand destruction, then there should be pent-up demand for retail sales of cars uh, coming back in, let's say, Q2. If we then think about production and the automotive supply chain can get back on track quickly, then that lost production in the first quarter, that minus 25 to 30% year on year that we talked about, theoretically can be made back later in the year. And this is especially true in China, given the overcapacity in the industry. So Brian Oliver there giving a very similar um, picture to you when you were talking about Macau. Um, he's talking about retail sales data down 90%. I mean, it's an extraordinary hit, isn't it? You were talking about intervention of the, the aid, state aid that the Chinese authorities um, could take. What else could we expect from, from them, do you think? We should be open-minded to expect all sorts of potential policy responses, including some very unorthodox policies. So Naturally, we would expect to see, as we have already, the PBOC inject massive amounts of liquidity into the markets. We've already seen the loan data for the start of the year to be uh, extremely high. It often is high to start the year, but it's right above expectations. So expect more of that. Expect more support for small to medium enterprise in particular, as well as the bigger organizations and autos and property and all these others we've talked about. Also be open-minded to helicopter money. Be open-minded to the fact that maybe everyone in Hubei province gets automatically, magically deposited a 1,000 RMB into their bank accounts. I mean, you know, I'm using that as an example because policy like that has been used in the past elsewhere in the world to provide that floor to shore up consumption. And, and, and it's, that would be very expensive, of course, and it does have some, some spillover effects and you'll get some misallocation of capital, no doubt, but it, it gets things going again. So be very open-minded. Unorthodox policy is, is very much on the table, I'd argue. Jing, what impact would that have if uh, everybody suddenly got a, a thousand renminbi in their back pocket? Well, inflation. Yeah, inflation, I, I think that's just basically the first thing people will think about with uh, uh, additional liquidity coming to the market. Actually, before even before this viral situation started, uh, inflation is already uh, well, one of the top three issues the central bank in China is worrying about. In general, we had inflation top 5%. And um, of course, mo- uh, people know that most of the inflation is driven by food and particular poor crisis. For, for the short term, I don't think that in food-driven inflation is coming down in the next couple of months at all. To make the situation a little bit more, co- more complicated, I think the viral situation, the supply chain disruption is going to be inflationary for the short term. Let me just bring Anna into that. Um, Is that then going to be exported to the rest of the world? As you say, China is now so integral to the the world economy. Yeah, some of this will be exported. And I do think that uh, the immediate short-term impact uh, is high inflation. However, I think uh, from the policy maker's perspective in the rest of the world, it will be considered as transitory and it will not be enough to get them to tighten policy. Um, So I do think that they will have to maintain an easing bias, whatever happens. Brian? There will be additional inflationary pressures. And clearly, if, if we had something like helicopter money, absolutely, that would, that would be something. But we will expect to see, not in, not in the next few months, but beyond that, the base effects will kick in. So inflation will start to become a little bit less of an issue. But there's no doubt about it. Real wages or the fact that a lot of people in China are not getting any pay, let alone their full wages, um, is, is clearly part of the challenge. And so that's why unorthodox policy might need to meet an unorthodox situation. 
and all this unorthodoxy, Jing, do you think it's being priced into markets? Well, the market has been quite complacent about uh, the situation going on in China. If you look at the, uh, the domestic Asian market, right, with the market took a hit uh, after Chinese New Year, but if you look at the past couple of days with very strong rally, we almost recover all the lost ground uh, since Chinese New Year. I think the market is definitely looking at uh, the policy response, the silver lining coming out of this viral situation. We will going to see very strong, very aggressive, special kind of policy response from the government. And liquidity is plenty. Now, domestic, very interestingly, domestic investor, the sentiment is very, very robust at this point of time, given the situation we have been discussed, the disruption of the supply chain, the ugly economy number we're going to see in Q1. But investors seems don't worry that much. It's remarkable, isn't it? This this robustness, this this confidence, Anna. I think interestingly, and the same applies to the markets outside of China. And it really worries me. I've been reading and hearing over the past few days, still this mentality uh, that bad is good. Bad news is good news. Bad means uh, policymakers will step in, the Powell put, the Draghi put, or now the, the Lagarde put, um, and central banks will, uh, will resolve the issue. But uh, I think this is a very complacent mentality. Uh, there isn't much ammunition, and we know that. The policymakers uh, have not admitted that the toolkit is almost empty, uh, but they have been worried about what they're going to do in the next recession. And guess what? This next recession might be happening starting now, um, and they need to react. And this kind of um, going uh, further into the negative territory on rates or doing more QE is just not going to help. Something must be done. Well, unfortunately, we have done almost everything we can in this podcast, but we've got some time left to play hotcakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Anna, I'm going to come to you first. What are your hot cakes? Um, I'm quite pessimistic, as you have yes. uh, <laughs> um, uh, just uh, heard. So I, I do like safe havens, even there aren't many of them out there. But I, I think the US dollar, I know it's very strong. I know it's overvalued. But I think the US dollar versus uh, perhaps some EM basket of currencies um, is still um, a, a good investment. Um, and hot potato, I've been talking about uh, market complacency. And uh, there are still there's still consensus about reflation. Uh, I understand the short-term impact on inflation you know, might be up rather than down, but the whole reflation story, I just I just think is, is not happening. It's a story of disinflation, um, and it will last through the year and beyond. So I like uh, short break-evens in Europe and US. Okay. Um, Jing, let me come to you. What are your hot cakes? What do you like at the moment? My hot cake is uh, the dividend yield stocks. Uh, in China, you can find a lot of large cap dividend yield stock with uh, yield above five six percent. And in an uncertain economy period, um, uh, I think valuation looking a little bit stretchy. Uh, dividend is something that you can count on. My hot potato is the five G related supply chain stocks. Of course, they are one of the best performing sector year to day. Uh, but if you look at positioning, is very crowded, expectation very high, valuation very stretched. I don't think China is going to pull out 5G as one of the market stimulus uh, to save the economy. So I think some of these fantasies are going to be put into reality. That's a perfect example of dropping something like a hot potato. Brian, let me uh, come to you finally. Your hot cakes. 
So we'd still be happy with some of the higher quality parts of the global bond markets. Uh, that includes high quality government bonds. They've come a long way, that's for sure, but they still will help you from a negative correlation. And the short end of the credit curve is, is definitely attractive as well. It's not going to shoot the lights out, but it will be a, a good place to, to, to protect your capital. And your hot potatoes? Well, the subordinated bank capital instruments in this part of the world, so COCOs or additional tier one securities, have performed extremely well over the last couple of years. They've just been massively bid up. So they're trading even inside 3%. So for a deeply subordinated bank capital instrument at sub 4% with a 3% type handle, we can happily take profit on those and switch into the ones we like. Steer clear of them. Sound advice. And that brings us to the end of this month's show. Thanks very much to my guests, Anna Stupanitska here in London, Jing Ning and Brian Collins in Hong Kong. Thanks also to our other contributors, Ian Sampson, Neil Goff and Oliver Trimmingham. The studio manager was Alex Wilcox and the producer was Seb Morton-Clark. If you've liked what you've heard, then please subscribe and rate us on your podcast app. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.